You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Ralph McInerney, and this is a course in the history of philosophy offered by the International Catholic University. First, a word about the International Catholic University. Our call letters are ICU, which does not mean intensive care unit. The idea of this university sprang to mind a few years ago in the light of complaints, many of them justified, that had been made about Catholic higher education, Catholic education in generally. The complaint being that although people might take the time and the trouble to seek out what the Catholic culture and patrimony was, very often they were given something else, something very watered down, sometimes something quite distorted. And it occurred to us that it might be wise to make available to a wide audience by various electronic means the main elements of that patrimony. This is the way the idea first came to mind that it should be a university and more than just sort of metaphorical employment of the term was something that came along as step two. And what we decided to do was to work out programs of study in both philosophy and in theology, master's programs in effect. And the course that we're embarking on today is a course in the sequence that leads to a master's degree in philosophy. The history of philosophy is, in very large part, the history of the history of philosophy. It is a very curious thing to try to mark the beginning of that which we call philosophy. Even if we track it back over recent centuries, we find many philosophers denying that other purported philosophers are doing philosophy. Philosophy seems to be largely a matter of inventing itself or assuring oneself that what had gone on up to one's arrival on the scene is defective in some massively important way and consequently a new beginning is proposed. Now of course if we took that very seriously as people said at the turn of this century that there was a new beginning in philosophy that the arrival of the sciences had completely redefined what philosophy is. If after the Second World War we took seriously the view that philosophy had taken a linguistic turn, which pretty well made everything prior to it obsolete, there wouldn't be much need for the history of philosophy, or at least it could begin in 1945, let's say. We're not going to assume that. We're going to assume that the history of philosophy covers a great many years, as a matter of fact, two and a half millennia. The first philosophers that enter into our records by hearsay, of course, at first, date from the 6th century BC. How do we know about them? By and large, if they wrote, their writings have not come down to us. By and large, we are relying on accounts that are given of them, narrative accounts, citations, sometimes very long swatches, which purport to be from the writings of these people. But they will be found, for example, in a philosopher we will be considering in the next lecture, Plato. Plato often talks about those who had preceded him in philosophy and speaks of them sometimes with high praise and sometimes critically. Plato lived into the 4th century BC, dies in the middle of the 4th century. So his witness to his predecessors is separated from them 
in time and is very much separated from us in time. For about a thousand years, there are people who give us accounts of figures at the very beginning of philosophy. It goes up into the sixth century of our era with Simplicius, a Neoplatonic commentator on Aristotle, who in the course of explaining writings of Aristotle where a earlier philosopher is mentioned, Simplicius will go to the trouble of retailing to us the texts or writings of that particular philosopher to whom Aristotle is referring. He is one of our most reliable sources. But Plato, first of all, just in terms of doing philosophy, refers to those who had done similar things before him, and as I say, he refers to them either with praise or with blame. Aristotle, perhaps more systematically than Plato, will try to give us an account of what has happened up to this point in a particular discipline. Sometimes, as we will see, we'll be talking about him in the third lecture, Aristotle will say there really wasn't anything like this prior to my efforts. He will say this about his logical writings, which are very extensive, and say, well, there just really weren't efforts to lay out argumentation, forms of argumentation, prior to the works of Aristotle we call collectively the organon or instrument of philosophizing the logical work. More often than not, he is going to retail for us, recount to us, what his predecessors had said about the subject matter at hand. So we could enumerate the various sources. Let me just, as a general proposition, refer you to Kirk and Raven's Pre-Socratic Philosophers, which is a standard collection of texts, such as we have them, of these figures prior to Plato, let's put it that way. And you'll see when you look at it that by and large these passages are drawn from later figures. St. Clement of Alexandria, for example, is a favorite source for our knowledge of the pre-Socratic. So I mention that, first of all, to give you a sense of the duration of philosophy that we are confronting here. We have figures from the 6th century BC, and here we are at the end of the second millennium, and we're trying to reconstruct what it is that happened when philosophy had its beginning. Now, in order to identify the beginning of philosophy, we unfortunately have to have some working notion of what philosophy is. And it seems to me one of the more interesting discussions in the sources, in Plato and in Aristotle, when they give us an account of what their predecessors had said, what they think they and their predecessors are doing when they talk about philosophy. It was fashionable when I was a young student to recount the progress in Greek philosophy as one from an interest in the religious, in the divine, and the remote and transcendent as the starting point, and then a progression from that to a increasing interest in the things of this world. So that we would have, as Auguste Comte would give us, a kind of movement from the metaphysical or theological to the natural, to the scientific. This is, to say the least, a fanciful reconstruction of the development of philosophy, particularly if it's meant to cover the earliest centuries of philosophy. But a typical book in this line is Cornforth, F.M. Cornforth's work From Religion to Philosophy. And he is suggesting that they kind of got over their interest in things that were not material and spatial and the like. 
There is, however, something to that title that's worth retaining, and that is this, that Aristotle will often refer to Hesiod and to Homer, and he will refer to certain theological poets, as he calls them, who are predecessors, antecedents in some sense of philosophy. And the question that then arises is, well, how do you distinguish between what the so-called theological poets are doing and what philosophers themselves are up to? One of the ways in which we will see this question is answered is by linking the religious and the poet to the philosopher in terms of what generates the kind of discourse that each of these three might put forward. And the genesis, both Plato and Aristotle tell us, is wonder. Looking around, looking at oneself, looking at the world, raising questions about what the point of our temporal existence is, and trying to give an account of that. Well, as we know, if you think of Homer, and you think of the Iliad and the story of the battle for the city of Troy to regain the purloined Helen, what you have going on are heroes in the temporal realm where the battles are going on, and then in the heavens on Olympus, you have the gods and the goddesses who, somewhat arbitrarily as it might sometimes seem to us, decide to champion this side or that side or this figure or that figure. So there is a two-layer kind of account of what was going on in the Trojan War. And it's very difficult to know just what kind of causality the particular human heroes are exercising if they are to be regarded as instruments of some more or less capricious deity. That would be one way in which we might say that in wondering about such a massive event as the Trojan War, Homer would give us an account which seeks to explain what is there before our eyes by appeal to something beyond as the real explainer of these events. So to Hesiod, the poet, in a work of his called Theogony, which suggests the birth of the gods, tried to introduce order into the plurality of gods, into the polytheism of Greek religion, by relating them to one another as in generations so that you would have the initial gods and then their progeny and their progeny and their progeny. And this introduced a kind of rationality. It is sometimes thought into this otherwise bewildering array of divinities who were thought to be causes in some sense of what's going on in the world around us. So that note, the note of wonder, the poet, like the philosopher, as we will be saying, the poet is triggered off, his activity is triggered off by wondering, what's going on? How can I understand this? And his account is of the kind that I've suggested in the case of Homer. We're dealing with the history of philosophy, and the first question we might ask is, as opposed to what? I mean, what is philosophy being contrasted with? So we have noticed that our knowledge of those people who are called philosophers from the very beginning is dependent upon people a good deal later than they and who give us accounts of or sometimes long quotations from their works. And they're assuring us these are philosophers. They're doing what we, these later people, Plato and Aristotle, for example, will say I'm doing. And I recognize in these predecessors the same kind of activity in which I am presently engaged. 
What is it that contrasts philosophers from the beginning? I mean, with what can we contrast philosophers from the beginning? What are non-philosophers like? And I'm suggesting to you that if we take the common suggestion of Plato and Aristotle, that wonder is the beginning of things for both the philosopher and the poet, we are on our way to being able to give at least an initial understanding of what philosophy is. A uh, passage in Aristotle's Metaphysics in which he gives us his account that it is in wonder that philosophy and the poet first begin. For it is owing to their wonder, Aristotle writes, that men both now and at first began to philosophize. They wondered originally at the obvious difficulties, then advanced little by little and stated difficulties about the greater matters, for example, about the phenomena of the moon and those of the sun and of the stars, and about the genesis of the universe. And a man who is puzzled and wonders thinks himself ignorant, whence even the lover of myth is, in a sense, a lover of wisdom for the myth is composed of wonders. So wonder is used here as a term for that mental state in which we are confronting a phenomenon and we don't understand what's going on. Imagine two and a half millennia ago, someone watching an eclipse, a lunar or a solar eclipse his reaction is going to be very much like our own in these very sophisticated times. Just a short while ago, there was a total solar eclipse that was visible in many parts of the world, and it caused a sensation. People came from great distances to be in a position to see this complete eclipsing of the sun. And that fills one with awe and wonder. And we, of course, have some sense of what's going on when an eclipse takes place, but that doesn't take away awe and wonder in another sense that we will want to be returning to. But the first sense of wonder is what's happening? What's going on? And a certain kind of fright accompanies the sense of not knowing what's happening, of being ignorant. So what Aristotle is suggesting here, and he's again echoing Plato, is that wondering at what's going on around us is certainly not confined to poets and philosophers and what he calls poetic theologian. But these three tend to give accounts that are meant to address that wonder and to remove in some degree, at any rate, the ignorance that it betokened so that the search for a state that would replace wonder is a search for an explanation. It's a search for causes. So the way in which the early philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, can give us a sense of how it begins is by sharing the mark of the philosopher that he wonders and wants to give an explanation with the poet. And then what we require is some way of distinguishing between the mythical or the poetic explanation and the emerging philosophical explanation. And it's here that we find the genesis of such interpretations as that of F.M. Cornforth that I mentioned a little while ago, from religion to philosophy. It's as if from a mythical explanation which invokes the transcendent or the divine, we are going to get straight on appropriate explanations of what is going on in an eclipse. Cornforth felt wrongly that that removes from the philosophical scene 
interest in the transcendent and in the divine. It merely locates it differently, perhaps, than it had been before. The common note, then, we might say, is ignorance, and this betokens a kind of question. There's a questioning, what's going on? And we get different kinds of answer to their question. We can get a poetic answer, and we can get a philosophical answer. In what does that difference consist? Plato, as we will see in the next lecture, speaks in the Republic of an ancient quarrel between the poet and the philosopher. And he is thinking chiefly of Homer, as we will see, and the role that Homer played in Greek education, the education of the young. And what Plato is principally incensed about in the Homeric epics is the depiction of the gods. Because as Plato points out, the Homeric gods do things and are praised for those things when those very things, if performed by a human being, would be reprehensible and punishable. So there's this confusion, as Plato sees it in Homer, of moral values by attributing all kinds of reprehensible behavior to the gods and putting it forward as something to be admired. The answer, then, that Homer gives is a kind of story. If you want to know what's happening on earth, he gives you a story of what's going on in heaven. And it's as if you don't ask any further there, why are these gods warring among one another? Why are they championing this side as opposed to that side? That's just sort of the end of an explanation. What Aristotle will give us as the note of the poet is this metaphor. Huh? The mark of poetic genius is the gift for metaphor. And metaphor for Aristotle is to speak of a thing in terms of something else, but in such a way that light is cast on what we are referring to. So that when the poet says, my love is like a red, red rose, we're thinking of a rose, but somehow this is a medium for thinking of the beloved. And as we know, it works. How does it work? Rather mysteriously. But what we would not assume is that the poet is literally enamored of a rose. Huh? He might be a florist, and when he says, my love is like a red, red rose, it might be like a red, red rose because it is a red, red rose. And then it would be a very different sort of thing than when the swain of the enamored youth speaks of his beloved in terms of flowers. Huh? So this is a metaphor, to take the term, the language of flowers, and transfer it over to talk of a very special human being, and somehow that conveys to us the sense of something about that girl that we would not otherwise know. But she isn't literally a rose. Huh? So what Aristotle will tend to suggest over the long haul and much more complicated than I'm putting it here is that in doing philosophy, what we want is a literal explanation. We want explanations which are appropriate to the thing being spoken about and are not importing metaphorically language from elsewhere. So let that suffice as a kind of first indication of what it is that distinguishes the philosopher from the non-philosopher. It's not an abstract distinction. What I'm suggesting here is an historical distinction. There were certain people like Hesiod and Homer who are referred to as non-philosophers by Plato and Aristotle. There were other people around shortly thereafter. Homer is usually placed in about 900 BC. 
Around the 6th century BC, we have the first philosophers, and according to Plato and Aristotle, and when we turn to them, as we will shortly, we're going to find it a little difficult at first to see that they're doing something remarkably different from what Homer, let's say, or Hesiod, what these two were doing, who are classified as non-philosophers. But what I'm going to do is to suggest that we think of the next element of this lecture as giving us pre-Parmenidian philosophy. That is, we're going to talk about those philosophers who live prior to this almost mythical figure of Parmenides who enters so dramatically into Plato and into Aristotle. He's clearly someone who marks a great turning point in the development of philosophy that, again, began in the 6th century BC, but when we get to Parmenides, something happens which casts the preceding efforts into an entirely new light. The first philosophers that we will have in mind, the first who are put before us by Plato and Aristotle, will be the so-called Ionian philosophers, and they are Thales, Anaximenes, Anaximander, and Heraclitus. Take Thales. Thales is given to us as the first philosopher. We have nothing of his by way of writing. Many things were said about him in ancient accounts, the seven wise men. He was one of them. He was said to have written a book on celestial navigation. He was said to have produced an algorithm whereby you could predict the next eclipse. But his doctrine is summed up in three sentences. These are hearsay. All things are water or come from water. All things are alive and all things are divine. These are the doctrines attributed to the man who by common consent is regarded as the first philosopher. So that as you can see, our effort to distinguish between the philosopher and the non-philosopher has brought us to a point of some difficulty. How can we make any sense of what Thales is saying that would make our analysis differ, let's say, from interpreting Homer? Our accounts of why Thales said the things that he did, namely that all things come from water, that all things are alive, and that all things are divine, tend to suggest that he was struck by the fact that moisture seems to be involved in any transmission of life from one generation to the next, that water is an absolute necessity for survival and so forth. But nonetheless, this leaves rather obscure why he would have chosen that particular mark of the living, as opposed to any number of others, as the basic source. What we're invited to consider here is that this is the beginning of an effort to tell us what nature is. The Greek term is phusis, from which we get physics, of course. What is nature? And what nature means for the Greeks, as the Latin derivative does for us, is that which is born. So the earliest philosophers are using this kind of approach to the coming into being of things, namely the analysis of them as living things which are being born. Hence, perhaps, the second doctrine that is attributed to Thales that all things are alive. Fuain is the Greek verb infinitive from which phusis comes, and it means to grow. So that nature, the natural, at the outset of philosophy is such that we don't seem to have a distinction 
between the living and the non-living. Now this is as doubtless as it should be, because as we will be seeing when we look at Aristotle, what Aristotle's account of the progress of human knowledge is goes this way. We first of all become aware of certain massively general truths about things, and then we progress to more and more definitive or specific knowledge of that mass of things. So it is not unexpected, perhaps, that at the outset here, the generalization over the whole realm of things was taken from those things that are alive and the characteristics of these things being born are attributed to any coming into being, any natural becoming, as we might sort of prosaically put it. The earliest philosophers are speaking of this more dramatically as things being born. Now, we might think that this is a metaphor, and so it would be if a clear distinction had been made between the living and the non-living. But I am invoking Aristotle here and a man named Barfield to suggest to you that that distinction is yet to be made. And until it is made, it's not as if the living is being contrasted with the non-living. Everything is being spoken of as if it were alive. And later on, a cut will be made such that one will say, well, not everything is alive, at least not in that way. There are some things which are inorganic or non-living, and we'll separate them off over here. It's probably not wise in as rapid a presentation as that which we are engaged upon to dwell at great length on the particular doctrines attributed to the pre-Socratics. They're obscure, certainly, and they're open to any number of interpretations. I mentioned Heraclitus as one of the earliest philosophers. The way he would figure into a kind of natural account of natural philosophy would be that he puts fire at the source of all things, as Anaximenes suggested that air is the source of all things, and rarefaction and density and so forth. These would represent the changes that we are observing. Of Heraclitus, we have something like 150 fragments. They're little snippets. They look like epigrams. And why they're arranged in the order that they are is itself a good question. They're derived from all sorts of different authors, later authors, who say things about Heraclitus. The literature on Heraclitus is enormous. Huh? Some people are set afire when they read these 150 fragments, and they want to tell us what they really mean. The fact of the matter is we can't know. We can't really know whether they're fragments of a single work but we don't know what their order was, what role they played in the larger work. But this does not deter scholars from an effort, and I don't mean to disparage those efforts, to figure out what it is that he might have said or meant by what he said. But my disposition is to suggest there might be better ways of spending one's time than that because it's almost as if any number can play. It's hard to know what the rules are for success or failure. We turn now to the figure that I gave as the kind of turning point in early Greek philosophy. We have, let's say, these plotting efforts which are distinguished more or less perfectly from metaphorical efforts to give an account of what's going on in terms of natural changes about us. And these all presuppose what? That there are many things about us, that the world is a world of diversity and multiplicity, and that within that realm, things come into being and they pass out of being. Now, when Parmenides comes on the scene, and his birth date is often given as 515 BC, so he would fall 
roughly between Thales and, let's say, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the fourth century, this golden period of Greek philosophy. And what Parmenides does is to call a halt to what had begun in Ionian philosophy in what is often seen as the beginnings of natural science. We do have a lot of Parmenides, relatively speaking, relative to those who came before him. And what Parmenides did was write a poem. Now, you see, here we have a massive difficulty for the suggestion that philosophers are to be distinguished from poets in order to figure out what they're doing. Here comes Parmenides, now one of the greatest philosophers, according to both Plato and Aristotle, and he expresses himself in a poem. And it is a poem that comes to us not whole, but suggestive of the whole. There is, first of all, a proemium. And Parmenides portrays himself as having been swept in a chariot up into the heavens and to have received a great revelation, which he is now commissioned to bring down to earth and tell us about. So he is establishing his authoritative credentials in a very religious way. He comes before us as a kind of prophet, as a spokesman for the divine. What is his message? Well, he's got two messages, really. One part of Parmenides' poem is called The Way of Being, The Way of Reality, and the other is called The Way of Seeming, The Way of Seeming. And here we have, for the first time, and it's an absolutely crucial development in philosophical thought, we have a distinction and an opposition created between what we see with our senses and what really is the case, between appearance, sensation, and reality, understanding. And there is no bridge between them. We repudiate the realm of the senses and turn to the realm of reality. That's the suggestion of the poem. What is it that appears to us to be the case? What I mentioned a moment ago, that the world is made up of a number of things, that there is a plurality of things, of beings in the world, and that they are changing. They come into being, they alter all kinds of ways while they're in existence, and then they pass out of existence. What Parmenides is saying is this, stop. That cannot be. It looks that way, and in the way of appearance, he will give us an account that looks not unlike those that we're familiar with from his predecessor, that is, on the assumption that there are many things that are changing and coming to be and all that sort of thing. But the real message of Parmenides is none of that is so. It can't be so. So what we find in Parmenides is this. The only truth that can be uttered and understood is being is, or being is one. There is no multiplicity whatsoever, and there is no change. If there were either one of these two, Parmenides suggesting, we are going to have to commit the fundamental logical fallacy of saying that that which is is not, and that which is not is. How in the world? does he arrive at this? At any rate, these logical rules are what prevent us from taking seriously the testimony of our senses and engaging seriously in the effort to understand what's going on in the physical world around us. What Parmenides is saying, well, you can talk about it if you want, but don't think there's anything really there. The only thing that's real, the only phrase that expresses truth and not a falsehood is, being is. That's it. It's that simple. Why did he get to the point? 
of thinking that the world of appearance violates these logical laws as he tends to express them. I mean, he doesn't call them that, but what we cannot violate is this. We cannot say that being is not, and we cannot say that what is not is being. Now, why does multiplicity and change run us afoul of those fairly reasonable demands? If you have two things, A and B, A is A and B is B, but A is not B and B is not A. So that you're saying in order for A to be A, it has to not be something else, reasonable enough. But for Parmenides, this violates the notion that we cannot say that what is, is not. We might put it another way, if we say there are two beings, in virtue of what would they differ? Well, if we say they differ in, there are two possibilities, being and non-being, if we say that they differ in being, that's no difference at all. So A and B must be the one being that is. And if we say they differ in nothing, that means there's no difference between them, so we end up again with only one being. That's a kind of corollary of what Parmenides is after. But basically what he's saying is that any talk of change or multiplicity is going to violate the home truth that being is not not being and not being is not being. Parmenides is a very obscure figure if we understand him on the basis of the fragments of the poem that have come down to us. But he's one of the most fascinating figures in the history of philosophy in the sense that later thinkers refer back to him as what Plato and Aristotle indicated that he was a great turning point in philosophy. But one of the epistemological, if you'll forgive me, ways of putting Parmenides' contribution, if that's what it is, is by not simply contrasting what our senses tell us and what we understand as two different modes of grasping reality, but as opposing them to one another and suggesting that we have to choose between what our senses tell us, the testimony of our senses on the one hand, and what makes sense in an abstract or in a logical way in another. So this distinction between what appears and what's really real will be decisive for Plato, and this is one of the reasons why Parmenides looms so large in the writings of Plato. One of the dialogues, as we will be seeing, is called the Parmenides, and in it, at a crucial point, in the development of Plato's doctrine. He presents us with the young Socrates, he's been old in the dialogues up to this point, who is in conversation with Father Parmenides, who comes to Athens, and he is this embodiment of wisdom. And the young Socrates enters into conversation with Parmenides about the central doctrine that we'll be looking at, the central doctrine of Plato's philosophy, which is predicated on this Parmenidian distinction between appearance and reality. So Parmenides is a massively important figure for Plato. He looms very large in Aristotle as well. When Aristotle, in his physics, is laying out for us what he takes to be the beginnings of our knowledge of the natural world, and he, in the first book of the eight books of the physics, is recounting for us what his predecessors had to say. And this is always a serious enterprise for Aristotle. He's interested in what contributions they made to the discipline that he is currently engaged in, and he never, almost never, ridicules the views of his predecessors. They might look as various as can be, they might look 
totally incompatible with one another, but Aristotle will, on reflection, suggest that there is a common assumption beneath this diversity. So he's always looking for help. He's not just looking for a foil for his own thought, as if he were saying, listen to this gibberish that people were uttering prior to me, and now here is the truth of the matter. Not at all. But in the first book of the physics, when he gives the account of what he calls the first philosophers of nature, the first natural philosophers, who are trying to tell us what nature is, what physical change is, what physical objects are, the product of these changes, he will come to Parmenides and will portray him there as putting the brakes on this whole effort by saying, well, sure, you can talk that way, but there's nothing really to talk about. There's nothing really there. There can't be. There can't be multiplicity, and there can't be change. And however much it appears to us that these things are true, multiplicity and change, however inevitable, perhaps, it is that we're going to talk as if they were true, what we have to do is constantly remind ourselves these things can't be true, and the only thing that is true is that being is, that being is one. Now, if Parmenides were right, of course, it would indeed stop any efforts to explain the happenings around us as a serious inquiry. We would simply be explaining what appears to be the case but is not the case. Not a very exciting prospect for someone engaged on a life's work. So Aristotle has to look at what it is that Parmenides said. He's able to show us that after Parmenides, any number of people tried to continue what had been going on before by skirting the strictures of Parmenides against multiplicity and change. Usually what they would do is wave the stricture against multiplicity and then argue that nothing really new was coming into being as a result of what we call change. So they would start off with a infinite set of elements, let's say, and say that change is merely the combination and recombination of these elements, but there's nothing really real like the elements that comes into being as the result of a change. And when the grouping is dispersed, nothing really real ceases to be. Aristotle will find that bizarre because very often the things that are put forward as the really real things, the elements out of which macrocosmic and surface things are composed, are themselves inferred entities. It's rather difficult to think of them as the things that we would first of all know. And what we do know right off the bat is that things like horses and trees and your mother-in-law and so forth, they're real objects. They're units. They're not just happenstance groupings of whatever. So if those things aren't one, this is Aristotle's view, then what else is one? And as a matter of fact, he will suggest that when we talk about elements as one, we're really talking about them on the model of macrocosmic things. So it's an odd sort of explanation. But his main concern with Parmenides is to address the claim that becoming violates the stricture against saying that being is non-being or non-being is being. And we will return to this later because it's more fittingly described in terms of our account of Aristotle's doctrine. But I wanted to mention it here by way of anticipation, as I do mention by way of anticipation Plato's dialogue, the Parmenides, as indicating the continuing and profound influence 
that Parmenides had in ancient philosophy, and not only in ancient philosophy. The contemporary philosopher Heidegger has devoted a great deal of attention to Parmenides, not least because it is here that we have the difference between seeming and being, between being and appearance. After Parmenides, usually when we talk about the earliest part of the history of ancient philosophy, we speak of pre-Socratic philosophy. So I'm being a little idiosyncratic in speaking of pre-Parmenidian philosophy, but take this to be a kind of division between the beginnings of philosophy with Thales and Eximenes and Eximander on the one hand and the 4th century BC. The 4th century BC, I've referred to it already as the golden age of ancient philosophy. And what we have in that period in Athens is the remarkable sequence of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Socrates and Plato, native Athenians, Aristotle, an immigre from Macedonia, who was associated with Alexander the Great. His father was a physician at the court of Alexander the Great. And Aristotle is sometimes said to have been the tutor of the young Alexander the conqueror of the then known world. Aristotle had lots of faults, that might have been one of them, but at any rate he came to Athens and entered the academy, the school of Plato. But when we turn to Plato, we're always being referred to Socrates. Socrates is the almost constant presence in the writings of Plato that have come down to us, something like a couple of dozen dialogues. And what I want to do as I terminate this first lecture in the history of ancient philosophy is to put before you, as best I can, this figure of Socrates, who comes before us as almost a philosophical saint. What we find among the writings of Plato are, first of all, relevant to Socrates himself, the apology of Socrates. And this is Socrates' response to the court that had convicted him and had sentenced him to death on the basis of his stirring up trouble in Athens by the kind of questioning and discussions that he generated just naturally. Socrates was a war veteran. He came back to Athens and he decided that he did not want, like others, to devote himself to the study of the natural world. He was much more interested in the city and in human beings and the interaction among human beings. And the story of Socrates is that he was told once that he was the wisest man in Athens, which came to him as a tremendous surprise. And eventually he tried to find out what this could possibly mean. And when he consulted the Sibyl on this, he was told that the reason he was the wisest man in Athens was that while others knew nothing, they didn't seem to know that they knew nothing, whereas Socrates knows nothing and he knows that he knows nothing. So this sort of ironic Socratic ignorance characterizes the figure of Socrates. But let me just pull almost arbitrarily from the apology of Socrates given us by Plato a few lines. If you think, he's addressing the jury, he's addressing the court, you are mistaken, my friend, if you think that a man who is worth anything ought to spend his mind weighing up the prospects of life and death. He has only one thing to consider in performing any action, that is, whether he is acting rightly or wrongly, like a good man or a bad one. On your view, the heroes who died at Troy would be poor creatures, especially the son of Thetis. 
and he refers to those who fought and died for the sake of honor. And he refers in the next paragraph to his own war experience and suggests that what if I, when I was asked to take a stand here, had decided not to, would I be someone that you would want to put forward as your own, as any kind of a model? The apology ends with Socrates saying to the court, now it is time that we were going. I to die, he's going to be executed, and you to live. But which of us has the happier prospect is unknown to anyone but God. When in the Phaedo, the friends of Socrates get together to hear an account of his last days. He's awaiting execution in jail, and the time of the execution will be set when a certain ceremonial ship arrives in harbor, and then Socrates will be forced to take, or we must take the hemlock, that is the means whereby his life will be ended, not by his own will, but by the will of the Athenian people. During the discussion in his death cell with his friends, who of course object, and finding this a very difficult moment, they of course suggest to him, why don't you cheat the executioner? Why don't you escape? Why don't you get out of here? And presumably that would not have been impossible. Or another way, why don't you cheat the executioner by taking your life prior to the arrival of that ship? You then will be the master of this event and not merely the victim of the court. And Socrates gives a memorable response to that. He cannot take his own life because he does not belong to himself. He is not his own possession. He belongs to God. And only God can exercise that kind of control, rightly, over life and death. So this memorable pagan testimony against suicide is certainly that in our own time runs contrary to a very dominant notion that somehow we belong to ourselves and anything we decide to do is okay and particularly if it's just a matter of checking out who other than ourselves could possibly have any objection to that or who other than ourselves could have control over our lives. Huh? So the notion that suicide involves someone other than ourselves and other human beings is present here in a vivid way in the death scene of Socrates. And when he's gone, when this account has been given, the narrator says, and thus died one of the noblest and best men that we have ever known. So Socrates is put forward as a kind of secular saint, a philosophical saint, the good life is what we're about. And as Plater will attribute to him in another dialogue, the whole point of philosophizing is learning how to die. Huh? A startling kind of thing, unless we think back to the origins of Plato's philosophizing in this influence of the Socratic example. Socrates functions, as I've mentioned, in almost all of the dialogues of Plato, and very often he's simply a figure who is entering into conversations that he never entered into historically. But the Apology and the Phaedo, the Crito, these early accounts seem to be as historical as we can expect. And the figure of Socrates looms massively large, and he will define the golden age of Greek philosophy, the fourth century, his influence on Plato is total. In fact, we would know very little of Socrates if it weren't for Plato. The only way we do know about Socrates is because several people wrote about him. 
and Xenophon was another. He shows up in uh, Greek drama, and it's a matter of some interest for scholars to try to put together these three different Socrates as they seem. But historically, Socrates, as he's given to us by Plato, is the Socrates who function in the history of philosophy and who functioned in the fourth century. You see, first of all, on Plato, and then on Plato's pupil, Aristotle, in different ways, but nonetheless, they would be unintelligible without the example of Socrates. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.